0: Tonight I'm going to give a parallel talk to what Nikki shared last night, learning how to blend vipassana practices with samadhi practices, or I guess samatha practices with vipassana practices, the wisdom-generating practices from the collecting and unifying practices. And to do that, I've added the other four steps to the 12 steps of the Anapanasati Sutta on this one piece. If you didn't get it, you don't have to have it. It's so similar that you can get it on the way out if you wanted to. So um, when I was in Burma, and especially before Burma when i was uh, getting into these practices and really trying to hear what the teachers were saying put it into practice and not quite be able to tell my internal experience and why it was different from what teachers were describing and some of it was what i felt in the teachers that it's like i feel some type of calm a kind of an evenness of care and attentiveness And they are describing how they developed that. And so when I looked at people who had done practice, I was like, there's something there. And I visit, but I fall away. And it's not my natural inclination. So, but I can't quite tell what's missing. And what was happening at the time is I couldn't help but interpret what they were saying through the range of my own experiences. And so I just kept getting a little closer and having some insights, personal experience, where I was like, oh, I think this approach is a little more in line with what they're saying. And then I would watch it have a slightly better impact on my own experience. That would be encouraging. But then I would get a wash of hindrances and feel very defeated. And like I don't know that I'm actually practicing like they're describing, because there still seems to be a gap from my personal experience, from the teachings, and be very excited when the gap seemed like it was narrowing and disoriented when the gap felt like it was really wide. So an image came to me uh, twenty years ago that I was playing with to see if it could kind of hold the summation of what I was teaching and it felt like what they were describing is that they really wanted me to practice like I was a record needle, pointing just at the experience that I was having, but not lean in expectantly forward or get hung on something that just happened. And so I was playing with this, is that what they're asking? Is that what they're asking? And then I kind of let it go. and And, but the image kept coming around and my mind kept thinking, there's something about this image that is helpful. And then seeing, for me personally, in the last five years, like, yeah, that's actually what this formal practice is, not what our whole lives need to look like, but what we're radically trusting is that we could rest faithfully and steadily like a record needle just on the moment at hand But symphonies would happen, or silence would happen, or the blues would happen, or uh, speeches would happen, or children reading stories would happen, and the needle didn't have to make those things happen. It just had to rest really intimately on what was right below it and be responsive to the vibrations right under it. And that image is like, this really kind of holds an intuitive sense of what's being asked. And why when I leave that faithful resting in what's happening, I start to get a a more discordant experience. When I'm looking down the road, like imagine a record needle sees you put on Beethoven. And the record knows like, oh, 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 here we go, here we go. (laughs) There's going to be cymbals, it's going to be dramatic, but uh, am I in the mood? But the whole development of the record player is that the arm is so steady, but it's not rigidly steady, it rests so beautifully in a steady way that it can be dragged by the little friction on the needle so that it stays perfectly on the groove. There's no thing that moves the arm. The arm is resting and it's stable, but it also moves so it can be tugged by the movement of the needle to stay on the record groove. So hopefully people much younger than me can imagine what I'm talking about. <laughs> so it used to be that you would have a plastic record and it had these really fine grooves in it and you'd move the, the record needle on the, the song you wanted to hear. And it wouldn't, the record needle would be steady, but it allowed a much more sensitive part of the arm to be the actual needle, which vibrates incredibly uh, sensitively. So the arm doesn't vibrate, the arm has to be steady. So that when the needle vibrates, the electronics inside the, the record needle arm, the arm and the needle can tell the difference between the steadiness of the arm and the vibrating needle. And that's what gets translated into music, is the sensitivity of that needle. And so this actually started holding a lot more intuitive orientation to samadhi and mindfulness, uh, the intimacy that uh, I was being guided towards. And with more and more faith, I would let go that I had to produce the music I had to brace if I anticipated big music is coming, or I could be lulled into the space between songs and think, oh my God, it's over. What, there's a new song? And so to actually be at that record needle that would float through a whole record of silence and not be disoriented, or it would play Uh, the same song over and over and over and not be disoriented. So how could our minds rest that faithfully in the stream of all that can happen? And that takes development. It takes development to do that. And I see the samadhi as much like that uh, cantilevering arm of the record arm that can hold the sensitivity of the needle so that there's a stable base, but it's not a rigid, stable base. And so the Vipassana mindfulness can do a very intimate flow and pick up these little vibrations and then translate that into music. And so this is one way that I see Samadhi and Vipassana working together. Before I had cultivated much samadhi, I was trying to do with willpower the relaxation and the sensitivity of the needle and the stability of the needle at the same time. I was trying to do all on the needle. But in learning to develop samadhi practice as a basis, the needle then just gets to pick up the vibrations. It's not also trying to be the whole aperture of the, of the record player. So, again, people younger than me, you have to work hard in that image or translate because it doesn't work with CDs. That may even be <laughs> uh, an earlier iteration. Um, so, in coming to these teachings, we're really interested in developing... Samadhi, and then using it as a basis for Vipassana. And we've been using the breath as sort of the the steady progression orientation. But many people have used many different ways to become steady in the flow of experience. Not rigid in the flow of experience, but find some type of stability that allows for flow. Another way of looking at this, I used to be a physicist, is to look at turbulent flow versus laminar flow. In laminar flow, a a lot of water can be flowing, but it doesn't have internal um, turbulence in it. That's called laminar flow. So if you were to put dye in at one end, the dye wouldn't really blend, although it would be moving. So the water's moving, but it has a kind of a smoothness in it. And that's some of what we're trying to do in Samadhi is that things move, but they're less turbulent. The water is just as liquidy, but the actual flow progression doesn't have as much uh, chaos in it. So sometimes, uh, again, so I'll talk about mindfulness and breathing and those of you who are using some other way into developing relaxed intimacy with the flow of our experience. Uh, Just out of curiosity, how many of you have used something other than the breath to help with the relaxed, intimate flow of your experience? Well, if you've used sound, if you've used the beauty at your eyes, if you've, use any type of present time experience to help the heart-mind come intimately into what's happening, settle down some, but not settle into fogginess or adriftness. That's, That's cultivating samadhi. There's so much changing all the time that we can't brace against it or be turbulent because of all the changes. And so samadhi is a wise way to introduce some type of less chaos into the flow of experience. And then we tend to want to stabilize that by owning it or purchasing it or grounding it. And you can't do that with the mind. It's too liquid to to grab it. And so you have to kind of patiently work out some of the turbulating factors like greed and aversion, that bring a lot of turbulence in, and you get a little more sense of flow. And within that flow, you can actually then introduce intimacy to ask questions within the flow of experience. But they're not intellectual questions, they're experiential questions. So on the one side, Anapanasati, simple instruction, has the whole instruction in it. So if you're practicing anything like this, and you can substitute in what your samatha practices are. Mindfully breathing in, mindfully breathing out. Just that much. Sometimes it's so simple that if you were to, if we had some type of uh, mind uh, indicator, you'd probably find that most of us up here are just doing that. Just know that you're breathing in. Just know that you're breathing out with more and more simplicity and faith in that simple activity. And once you are mindfully breathing in, mindfully breathing out, or whatever brings you that type of calming down that doesn't lead to spacing out, the next suggestion is while breathing in, I let go. While breathing out, I let go. So that's the second half of it. Show up and let go. Show up let go, and then blend those two so that there's a showing up process that's fluid and not getting snagged on what it's showing up for. If you emphasize a letting go, you might space out. Letting go, who cares? Calgon, take me away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's another. So just you know, I'm about to turn 55 just so you can <laughs> kind of <laughs> tell what my mind goes to for references. Then we come to the detailed side. And sometimes this is useful. And sometimes it's a net of views and complexities. And it actually increases our dissonance to have too many guidelines. That's why there are two sides of this. Turn over the simple side. And the simple side feels like it's a little, it's not refining then you could try experimenting with the side that has more detail. And again, for those of you who are not using the breath, you have to find your way in. And we teach loving-kindness retreats, we teach death reflection retreats, Uh, we teach other forms, body scanning, uh, the four element retreats. There's a lot of these factors are very similar depending on what you are studying. But the Buddha put mindfulness of breathing right through, it's sort of almost like the the spine of his teachings. And then there were a lot of balancing factors around it. But if there was a column that everybody kind of oriented towards, it was mindfulness of breathing. And then he himself practiced it. He went on a few retreats even after he was a Buddha. And he practiced this, these same 16 steps but he wasn't practicing it in order to further clean up his act. But even when he was free, this was still what he practiced for weeks or months at a time. Another way that this gets misread by our ordinary minds that think about accomplishment and think about getting better at something, and getting better at something means is it was worth the effort, So it's very common to feel like if I'm only in the first tetrad, I'm falling behind. I'm sure other people are already in this fourth tetrad. So therefore, I am a slow practitioner. But the way this teaching works is that you go through these 16 steps, these four tetrads, and you go back to the beginning. So This is in the mindfulness teachings is that you work on the breath and body. You get a little more subtle access to what you might call your energy body, the PT, the sukha whether it's felt in your body area or it's felt more as an emotional state, greater sense of well-being, a kind of a liberated lo- aliveness, of PT. If there's still mental habits that are causing turbulence, you can let them go First, breathe with them. You might find they dissolve just by acknowledging them. Or a little reflecting, a little help, a little meditation in the mind lets go of an old resentment or lets go of a kind of a snagging fantasy. That leads into a deepening of samadhi, but there's no no end to the amount of samadhi that's beneficial. More samadhi is more beneficial. So we're always going deeper into that. And that becomes the basis to explore the fourth tetrad. And this is classically the territory of the Vipassana. The first 12 steps, there's wisdom needed. Vipassana knowledges can be helpful, but they're not the central point of what you're cultivating. And so we come into this fourth tetrad, and it parallels what uh, Nikki was describing last night. So just to review, uh, you experience the mind as best we can with less turbulence because of calming the mind, relaxing the mind. The mind has less turbulence in it. That mind, you say, now that we're not doing several things in the back of our mind, splitting our attention, let's take all of it and come back to just breathing in, breathing out, and letting go. And that's the samadhi of mindfulness of breathing. And then you could notice it's so relaxed. I feel like I've felt this before, maybe those like perfect moments. I had a friend in high school he s- who said, uh, what's that thing that happens when you take out the trash? And then you empty the trash and you look around and the whole world is perfect. Like, what what is that? And how come the next time you take out the trash, it doesn't happen again? But like, those moments are amazing, but they're very ordinary, but they stand out. So it's standing out, but it could also be more ordinary. So that's a mind without torments. It may not be that amazing, other than the fact that it's not being tormented at the time. But it doesn't necessarily come with a whole Macy Day flotilla coming by with uh, the brass band playing and big floats. And it may just be a very ordinary moment, but you're not being tormented in that moment with doubt or impatience or uh, self-grandeur or self-doubt. Yeah, I was just eating a carrot and I wasn't being tormented. And that becomes a basis where you can then do uh, the refined work. So that creates the stable arm over the record. And that allows the needle of, of attention to pick up on, even though there's a stability in this flow and there's less turbulence. By relaxing there, there's also a hum happening. So it's right in, the, uh, the teachings in this say, when breathing in, we observe impermanence. When breathing out, we observe impermanence. And you don't have to get this like, okay, if I did that, jump onto the next one. You can let that one sort of mature. And the gentle instruction is while breathing in, breathing out, the breath is fairly reliable. It's a dynamic process, but there's always a breathing Sometimes it's coarse, sometimes it's longer, but there's an in-breath and out-breath. It's reliable enough so I can make it the center of my attention. It's soothing. Surprisingly, at times, I'm quite content with breathing. And so then, the next thing you're doing is is not necessarily a gross, radical next step. It's right in the flow of breathing that in the intimacy of that moment you might be picking up on the sort of soothing reliability of the breath and all you want to do in that same moment of intimacy is feel that it's not actually a granite block of stasis you're relaxed there's well-being in it but it is a ever fluid process but the fluidity doesn't explode into chaos it's just that uh, samadhi is made up of very fresh experiences. They're just, because uh, the mind is always fresh, samadhi is actually an arising experience. It just smooths out and is not as turbulent. So, one gentle way to do this is you're breathing in, breathing out. And the way I, I do it so that I have just the lightest touch that I'm not coarsely retooling my mind is just, maybe repeat the word fresh or freshly arising, freshly arising, freshly arising. So I have the smoothness of samadhi, the ease of samadhi, but I'm picking up in this same experience, it actually isn't stale, even though the breath can be not so interesting It's always a fresh breath. So another kind of silly example, um, if you ever get uh, the chance to go to an artisanal chocolate shop, it's like, why is this better than junk chocolate? And you taste it, it's like, yeah, yeah, junk chocolate, this chocolate, same, same. Like, okay. No, you actually have to taste it. Like, really taste it so you relax. And you taste it... And it's like, oh yeah, there is something here. It melts differently. Oh yeah, there are flavors. I was like, bad chocolate, it's only good for about two seconds. And then right away the pleasure decays. But good chocolate, you're like, okay, it came on like this. Wow, it's still good. Wow. I'm actually still tasting it. And then it doesn't resolve in a bad taste. So like twenty seconds later, you're still like yeah, I'm still glad I had that. And I'm not, I'm not yet needing to get new chocolate in there to cover up the bad chocolate aftertaste. I'm actually still pretty content with that initial taste, and it doesn't lead to, like, having to eat a lot at once. It's good enough that, as the seconds go by, it's, it's really lovely. So... You know, a silly thing is you could uh, get into baking brownies and give it to someone. They eat it just as fast as they eat any brownie. You're like, okay, slow down. I actually put some thought into this, some (laughs) care. I want to see if you can appreciate the chewiness. I've really worked on this. (laughs) It's like, oh, I hadn't stopped to ask if it was a chewy brownie. I was just doing brownie. But you're right. Good job on the texture. It's like, okay, now, can you taste the cardamom? I had, no. Well, now eat it slower and really taste that. So I'm not asking you to eat a different brownie. I'm asking you to slow down and really taste the brownie at hand. So while breathing in and breathing out and having ease with breathing, it's in that same experience. You don't really have to torque your mind. It's just in the same experience. Is it stale or fresh? Are you sensing one breath ago or one breath from now or like that record needle are you right on the breath at hand and that's what took me a long time is just letting an in-breath be an in-breath and not like good i got it nailed it now here comes an out breath don't miss a bit of it it starts here and ends there that's usually where you space out so Got to get the out-breath. Man, that was quick. I think I got most of it. Oh, my God, the in-breath is happening. I'm totally not prepared for it. <laughs> I got to really, and I was just working my mind to accumulate and grab on to breaths. And it was very agitating. And i get tired, and i space out. But over time, just like, this is an in-breath. Oh, that's really, this is an out-breath. This is really peaceful. This is an in-breath. This is an out-breath. How could, this do, how could this do anything more than what it's doing? Like it's good in this moment, but it, how could it solve problems? How could it become something without making it become something? And it turns out that mind that can let an in-breath be an in-breath and an out-breath being an out-breath has resolved so many contradictions that a breath alone is worthy of your attention. And that's the beauty of samatha practices, that's a very beautiful way to resolve uh, contradictions and confusions so that when you come to the work of vipassana, it's not doing all the heavy lifting. You resolve some of your self-relationship that you enjoy breathing. And so when you go to do the vipassana work, it doesn't have to do all the heavy lifting. And that's what uh, Nikki uh, called dry vipassana, that you're trying to do through Vipassana all of your liberation work. Whereas Samatha practices do a lot of transformation. They reduce the amount that you crave. They reduce your resentments. They help us be present time oriented. They help us find sweet humility. Uh, So that's all beautiful. And then when we come to do the Vipassana work, it's right in that same place of well-being that you can then see nerves don't fire on old material nerves fire on fresh material if you want to use the nervous system as a model so everything is always fresh freshly arising out of these conditions and so that's not a heavy torque on the mind that you now have to do vipassana Right in the samatha practices, it was fresh all the time. But what we pick up for the samatha relief is how reliable it is. So even though it's fresh all the time, what we're helping to settle our minds on is the fact that it's reliable. You can dare to let go of other things, put more of your eggs in the basket of just in-breathing and out-breathing. So it may not occur to you that there's an exquisite freshness in every moment it's inherently in every moment that it's fresh you can't see anything from yesterday our eyes don't work that way you can't hear anything of tomorrow it's not possible our five senses are immediate our animal body lives in the present like a good animal companion and our mind is the one that thinks that it's not in the present but every thought is actually arising freshly in the moment that it's happening. And so it'd be almost like taking a quarter and flicking it, grabbing it, and always looking at one side. And then it's the same coin, but it has a different side, which is that in the same mode of being in a samatha practice, it's just a very slight, tasting the cardamom sort of way. <laughs> you taste the freshness of every moment. And if it feels like a really big torque on your mind to do that, chances are you're trying too hard to make something happen. So I had a chance to go uh, take students through Burma, and we would often visit a monastery with a teacher and... Um, and I was asking him about this because he, he's, he teaches a way that's very relaxed, but there is a lot of inquiry. And so I asked him like, how do you get people to see impermanence? I said, like, you don't have to, you just ask for the intimacy with what is and impermanence can't not be seen. I was like, yeah, but don't you ever kind of like push somebody a little bit because like they're not picking up on it. It's like, nope, I just ask them to be aware of what's happening with ever more curiosity and just what is happening? What is happening? What's the nature of what's happening? That's the nice thing about impermanence is that everything actually is impermanent. There is no way for something to be permanent. And so reality is very patiently waiting for us to go, oh, this is how reality is. I couldn't believe that I was asking things to be permanent when nothing has the capacity to be permanent. So it's not something we have to believe or we have to force. We usually just have to stop the confusion and the uh, unconscious need for things to be reliable and static. And then my universe is less chaotic. So if I put something down, it should stay there. And when I come back and it's there, I'm like, good, stable universe, that's the good thing. But it's not stable. This can be lifted, the water might be refreshed, something might happen, somebody else might move it. So I'm over asking a fluid, changeable universe to be as static as I'm comfortable with it. And it turns out, and this is an amazing thing about a human mind, is that we actually can relax into this and find the peacefulness in it. So if you relax into it, you might find like, this just makes everything worse. It's chaotic, it's uncertain, it's impermanent. This is horrifying. That's what most people would say about do you realize how impermanent your body is? Oh my God, don't tell me. Do you realize how impermanent your house is? Do you realize how impermanent all your.? Like, this just makes me so anxious. But the nice thing about having enough samadhi well being in you is that you're already flowing in through an impermanent universe. You finally have a breath inside of you that can relax. And then what don't you contact that isn't showing you its true nature? Because of the samadhi, you can actually sustain intimacy with the actual world. And see, it's all impermanent, but it's not like it explodes into chaos. Like, this is a well-built building. It's not permanent, but it's not so impermanent that you're in utter chaos all the time. I can put something down look away, and it's likely to be there. So impermanence is something you can relax into and find right relationship to. So this is a natural and gentle step from the third tetrad of samadhi, especially using the breath, because the breath is this beautiful movement. If you can take refuge in the breath, you're taking refuge in something that has flow in it. And if you can already find that that's welcoming some peace and that you don't try to grab onto it, affix it in any way, that you can breathe your way through impatient cycles that happen or uh, irritating or sleepy cycles that happen. Just keep breathing. Let the breath be like a a little um, life preserver you hold on to in rough seas, and then on calm seas, you can just hold it lightly. So the breath can actually help you through hard times, it can help you through easy times. And it has this built-in dynamic nature to it. And so then when you go to start observing a Nietzsche, it doesn't have to go right into this slap, reality slap across the face. It's right in the experience you're already having. You just learn to appreciate it. And this is the gentle way to introduce uh, vipassana. It's just like, I was already enjoying the brownie, and now somebody's telling me, enjoy it a little more, and you can taste things that wouldn't occur to you, but that's how good this brownie is. That's how good the human mind is, that when it's actually developing... It's not that horrified by impermanence. Impermanence can come with a lead quality that it brings in this freshness, it brings in some mystery. If there's enough samadhi in the heart, it doesn't mind the mystery. Actually, the mystery evaporates some boredom that comes in. If things weren't fluid and changing and mysterious, we get really monotonous. But no two days are alike. And because no two days are alike, you can rest in the parts of the day that are familiar, but also be refreshed by the fact that it's uncertain. And it doesn't have to immediately shock you. As you are comfortable putting a little more weight on that, you can feel deeper into impermanence. And if you, if you, entice yourself to grow a relationship to impermanence, you can find where the edge is. Like I'll let all things be impermanent, but I'm really hoping other things are not. If you take too big a jump with impermanence, it is scary and the mind doesn't wanna be there. And so then there's a retraction. So I'm going through this right now Uh, with the aging of my own body but it's not quite at the threatening stage. It's just at the slightly disappointing (laughs) stage. And so if I'm not paying attention, I'm like, "Ah, I got an aging body. But I already know, watch out for that thought. That thought is such a split from a truly beautiful appreciation of a body I have a 55-year-old body. And if I think back at where my parents were at 55, I'm like, yeah, I'm actually on track. They had a body that was going through changes very similar to my own at this time. So I'm on some, some type of beautiful arc, and I actually belong to this arc. So these freckles used to go away, and now they don't go away anymore. And I remember that around 55 my parents started having freckles that didn't go away. Those became age spots. And you could cover them up with makeup if you don't want to appear like you have age spots. So my unconscious mind might go like, oh, I'm starting to get an old body. That's a mind that doesn't like impermanence. But a little bit more hanging out, it's like, oh, this is an edge. My body's aging. Right now it's not threateningly aging, but I know the arc. And just as my parents are more elderly now, I'm on that same arc. So my body is is giving me signs of impermanence and I breathe with them and see where the resistance is and where the story is that doubles down on the resistance. I can breathe in and out, soften that. And just like I would walk by an older tree that's not in its midlife where it's all strong, all branches, takes the storm, It's got a broken limb because it's a little older. Yeah, I got a shoulder that's like not as good as it used to be. Yeah, that's about the right time for that type of arc. I'm pretty blessed if that's what my uh, life challenges are. So now I'm using samadhi, a well-being, a tenderness to be present. And then I'm using that tender place to start to look at where does my suffering come from? And one place that it comes in is this very natural impermanence that has an arc to it. And I breathe to become more comfortable with that. And then I find that I can become comfortable, with. is surprising. But yeah, if I work with it long enough, it's just nature, and I belong to nature. So i would be broken from nature if i didn't age and this actually brings in peace so the same the same anicca that would be threatening actually starts to be beautiful and i can it brings happiness but it takes some kind of breathing right on the edge sometimes anichas come to you and they force you to change faster than you want to. you can use the breath to help you with a lot of loss that's much faster than you want. But it behooves us, which means it puts little hooves on us to give us traction, where the mind would rather not have traction. So it behooves us to take a samadhi moment, and start to look at where are we resisting this truth of impermanence. So again, my parents are now the aging came with them getting wiser, kind of more mellow. And I appreciated every year they aged and then they got kind of cuter, kind of an older version of them. So it didn't come with a lot of loss. But in the last five years, my parents' aging has started to actually uh, be much more intense. And so that's where, that's my current edge of what I can breathe with. And I tried to do a Buddhist bypass, like, oh, it's just natural. Like, nah, temple, you're this is an edge. You know, you got there intellectually, you got there with your adult mind, but this is a very personal experience of Anicca. And I find with my parents aging, if I can't come to terms with their aging, they and I are always going to be in resistance to these truths. And it's not helpful. So it's hard enough for my parents to age. But then they sense in me, I'm also struggling with their aging. but Not in a way that we could commune together about the struggle. It's this sort of like apprehension. So then I do this, things are impermanent. This is natural. And then I watch this exhale happen. And like every generation has had to take care of aging parents. I'm now belonging to every century that humans have lived and not just humans, deer, whales. Mammals are very bonded as a a species, but whatever mammals are kingdom. No, it's not quite a kingdom. Anyhow, uh, whatever that level is it's very bonded so now i'm looking in to a deer's heart and seeing them looking at oh used to be these elder deer used to protect us but now they're a little shakier so deer have had to deal with loss Uh, every mammal has had to deal with that bonded nature and then feeling the loss of elders it's such a beautiful invitation. It's worth the work. Not only does it reduce the suffering, but it opens up a beauty that when you actually do the work, and that tends to be what Vipassana is. Vipassana tends to be harder truths that are harder to come to terms with from our conventional points of view. And so therefore, there's a struggle. If we do drive Vipassana, we're trying to do all that work just by holding ourselves accountable to these fundamental truths. But with the practice of samadhi, there's a lot of relaxing, letting go, trusting the relaxing, and then you can do uh, the pasana meditations and allow yourself to be supported in growing your orientation around impermanence. There are many uh, ways um, that you go from into impermanence, and then the Buddha with different people kind of mapped out different benchmarks. Here in this uh, mindfulness of breathing, there are four steps to this vipassana training. And if you get to know them, they all kind of go through a similar terrain. So the first thing is you see impermanence. You come to terms with impermanence, and that leads to the next step, which is viraga. Viraga. And it's it's the quenching of this agitation where we're working really hard to get more control and influence. And that leads to a lot of agitation, so it feeds a lot of craving, a lot of fantasy, and a lot of fear. And even though you're opening up to impermanence, it doesn't actually lead to a lot more agitation. Breathing with impermanence settles some, and then you get viraga, which is sort of like a a wind-blown lake top uh, that's full of chaotic waves, and the winds die down, and the lake is peaceful. And so Anicca, coming to terms with it, actually brings peace. It brings peace because you you can appreciate it, and you can feel the fluidity of Anicca, so it helps with cultivating viraga. And like in all these steps... In mindfulness of breathing, the longer you hang out with one step and let it ripen, the more intuitive the next step is. But if you try to rush this, uh, you start forcing it and it's not so intuitive. So we practice observing Anicca. That ripens viraga. Viraga is uh, less drama uh, through direct experience. So, uh, Nobody has to stop me from eating too much Halloween candy anymore. And I never took a training to do it. It was by actually having too much Halloween candy that it I got viraga by intimacy with Halloween candy versus like, don't do it, cavities, never never worked. But actually, there came a point in my own growth where I was like, it's gross. And, <laughs> and first, it's the... the the candy cones or whatever, is that really bad? It's like, ah. But you know, there's artisanal chocolate every now and then. (laughs) And it's like, you know, it's more fun just to put on the costumes and let other kids have fun than the candy. And so you switch over. You have viraga of what used to be an old drama passion to get the candy. Your heart starts orienting towards love, kindness, generosity. We We lived on a very beautiful street in Victoria that was known for its generosity around Halloween. So our first Halloween, the houses were festooned with spider webs and everybody got dressed up. And I was like, oh, this is so generous of the adults. They're really getting into it. They wanna craft a submersive experience for kids to come and have this. For the adults, that's much better. They bought the candy. They already have the candy. They could sit there and eat the candy and they could do it every night, but they actually give away the candy because the viraga of chasing the candy is no longer interesting. What is interesting is cultivating, curating a magical night for younger people. And we come to, uh, the 15th step and this one, it really takes a lot of tenderness and patience to let the ripening of the 15th step, neroda, to be something that's blissful, that's relieving, that's calming. Because neroda is secession without remainder. And to the ordinary mind, what could be more horrible than a complete ending? And to the ordinary mind that's trying to establish uh, property, trying to establish health, trying to establish some control. The fact that things come to an end and without a remainder is really shocking. But if you come to terms with anicca by some degree, have your mind relax some around it, you can then start to tune into viraga, I'm sorry, into neroda and start to see neroda is like an exhale. And imagine if you kept even 1% of every breath. Within 100 breaths, you couldn't breathe in. And so, Naroda, the fact that you breathe out and you don't just tuck a little bit of breath, just in case breath. You just take a little breath and you put it in a bottle next to you. your just in case breath. You don't need just in case breath. In fact, it's better if you exhale. And we've gotten so used to it. And we don't see breathing without remainder allows the most room for breathing in again. So the fact that there's no remainder is how the universe stays so fresh and beautiful. Uh, If trees didn't decay and become soil, new trees couldn't grow. There'd just be a stacking up of old trees. It's the fact that they decay without remainder that we have rich soil. If humans didn't cease without remainder, there wouldn't be room for new humans. And so this urge to concretize things actually is not natural. It doesn't align with the way things are. But to come in where you can actually contemplate and breathe with and then find the relief of Nirodha versus the terror of Nirodha It cleans the slate, you know, if you you have a a blackboard and you use a kind of chalk that doesn't fully erase, it's not a, it slowly becomes less and less useful. If you have a day that doesn't come to an end, you can't sleep. Letting the day come to an end allows for much deeper sleep. Exhaling allows you to inhale Letting go of one moment makes the biggest room for the next moment to fully arise. We don't keep that one either. And so you are at the one time watching all these things beautifully arise, and it's so lubricated that they evaporate without remainder, no matter how beautiful they are, and that just cleans the slate for the next arising. And could you trust that? When I took my two nieces, uh, must have been about seven and nine to this beautiful beach in Rhode Island where all these tumbling rocks and the surf tumbling over and over and they all get polished. I was really wanting to see this and they fell in love with the polished rocks just like I did. And they did what I did at their age, which is they started to try to keep them. And you had to go down a pretty big cliff down to find this beach on Block Island. And so they would start hoarding these rocks and it's like, okay, yeah, if we have to walk all the way up that cliff, walk a couple of miles back to the ferry, but the rule was, I'm not gonna carry your rocks. If you want it, you gotta carry it. And so they made them choose which rocks they wanted to keep. And They kept some really big ones and some small ones and they got halfway up the cliff and they let the big ones go. And I said, these rocks have been here for a long time. It's fun to come back here, but don't carry them up the cliff. But they're so beautiful, how can we let them go? And then they let them go by the top of the cliff. They didn't keep one rock because it was just too hard to hold on to them. That's still fighting the way things are. But if you trust there are beautiful rocks, you get to the top and there's a beautiful view, and you let that go and you keep walking, you get to walk in a very beautiful world and not actually have a mind that fixates. And because of Naroda being a part of the equation, the ceasing without remainder, you can't stop it. You can't stop this ceasing without remainder. But with breathing and opening yourself up to it gently, uh, proactively behooving yourself to come to terms with things cease without remainder. It actually causes a tremendous amount of relief. The fact that Some, that the universe works this way, that it cleans up after itself, that it creates this whole day and none of us actually have to do the work of getting rid of it in order to make room for tomorrow. Like having some beautiful parent that you play with all your toys, you fall asleep and you wake up the next day and all your toys are back in some place. Like, yeah, the universe just takes care of things. The universe is taking this day. And that will make the complete room for beautiful sleep and for waking up tomorrow and having a whole fresh day. But if there's something about today that you think I need to hold on to that, my just-in-case memory that I want to repeat, you don't have room for tomorrow. You don't have room. So letting Naroda work on you, you breathe with it, you look at the freezing around it, you begrudgingly relax into it, you relax fully into it, it's happening anyhow. And then you feel a kind of lack of agitation and it's this most beautiful release. And it's like, I'm letting things go without remainder. And the universe just keeps painting another miracle, another masterpiece. And I didn't grab it either. I didn't get just-in-case moments. And like this record needle, I could, all I have to do is rest in the moment and symphonies show up, or silence shows up, or the blues show up, or hip-hop shows up, or whatever shows up. An infinite amount of music can be played because the needle is so willing to just touch the record right underneath it. Because of that, it can play all music. But if the needle had choice or preference, if it braced itself, if it lingered, it would warp every song that came. So then this work of the fourth tetrad is challenging to an ordinary mind that's trying to concretize things for security, trying to get a lot more control over what changes and when. At least when we're doing formal practice, we're really experimenting with this radical showing up and letting go, breathing in and breathing out, the same amount. If you don't get that balance, you're not doing well. But you breathe in and you breathe out just as many molecules, so your body isn't accumulating molecules of oxygen. You're not losing mass because you're over exhaling. You get a balance of breathing in and breathing out. It's the work of this fourth tetrad. And it allows a maturing of your nervous system so that it can actually handle bigger challenges and even find that these other things that Nikki described, unsatisfactoriness could be so haunting. But when you can let things be unsatisfying, there's such relief. It doesn't have to be satisfying. It just is what it is. And there's a certain satisfaction that you can come to terms with the dukkha nature, it couldn't be satisfying. So I stopped over-asking something to be satisfying. It just was what it was. came and it went. And then something else happened. And so then these things that are so challenging to us in ordinary life begin uh, soothing us and healing us. And then we can turn towards these truths and the beauties that they cultivate in us and realize it's really wrong view that suffers in relationship to reality. Reality can still be very unpleasant and challenging, but the suffering is misinterpreting it and wanting it to be otherwise. And so using the samadhi to allow for stable intimacy and then guiding your attention where it wouldn't think to go, but this starting with uh, forever freshness is such a gentle way to come into impermanence. That's a good starter place. And it's where the Buddha suggested is that you watch any phenomena and you watch its arising. Arising, arising and rising, and then settling. Breath, 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 arising breath, in breath, out breath, arising. And you're just starting to tip into this impermanent experience. And then you don't have to take it much further than that you're starting a process that begins to broaden, and impermanence is not the enemy. It's the resistance to impermanence that creates so much turbulence, but the impermanence itself is very relieving. And then this neurotic quality keeps cleaning the slate, keeps starting us over fresh, over and over and over. That leads to the 16th step, Fully releasing, fully letting go, because you allow things to come and go without getting tangled up in them. So let's sit together for a little bit. force your mind to try to see this. Just have faith in the intimacy itself. And things ripen in that intimacy. The breath is already coming and going. And all we have to do is be intimate with it or any experience at any of our sense doors. like a needle in these moments into the rest of the evening and just let each moment be as simple as it is. That's our
1: practice. Let's chant um, the four boundless qualities together. And an invitation to make the chanting itself uh, a practice. So really feeling the resonance of the words and the sounds within your body. That can be a great support for loving-kindness practice. I will abide pervading one quarter with a heart imbued with loving kindness. Likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth. So above and below, around and everywhere, and to all as to myself. I will abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a heart imbued with loving kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. I will abide pervading one quarter with a heart imbued with compassion. Likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth. So above and below, around and everywhere, and to all as to myself. I will abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a heart imbued with compassion, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill-will. I will abide pervading one quarter with a heart imbued with gladness, likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth, so above and below, around and everywhere, and to all as to myself, I will abide pervading the all encompassing world with a heart imbued with gladness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable without hostility and without ill will. I will abide pervading one quarter with a heart imbued with equanimity, likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth, so above and below, around and everywhere, and to all as to myself, I will abide pervading the all-encompassing world, with a heart imbued with equanimity, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. And we'll sit in silence together for 20 minutes or so. An invitation for you to hold yourself, your experience in this moment with great tenderness and great care. Just taking a moment, and even if it's a support for you, bring the hand to your heart. And checking in with yourself. Are there any parts of your experience right now after a long day that would benefit from some softening, from some kind attention? Each moment fresh and passing away. So precious. Holding all of this with great care, with great kindness. Just one kind breath at a time. Feeling the intention of metta. Support all parts of your body, all parts of your mind. Nourishing all the cells of your body. Often gentle, and if it feels right for you, letting this kind intention. Move out to all the other beings in this room, all the fellow practitioners, silently wishing each other well, wishing each other peace. Pushing each other, deep rest. And perhaps expanding out to include all the staff on this land, cooking food for us, supporting this retreat to Run really smoothly and wishing them well, wishing them ease, and all the creatures on the land, the turkeys the lizards, the insects, the birds, all the different beings, may they all be well, may they all be safe, may they all live in peace. Wishing you all a good rest, whether you're practicing more, heading to bed. Wishing you well. See you all tomorrow.